So 1 Samuel, chapter 7, and beginning halfway through verse 2. Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths, and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted, and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. Now Samuel was serving as leader of Israel at Mizpah. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. When the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines, and they said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and sacrificed it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day, the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, and they stopped invading Israel's territory. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. The towns from Ekron to Gath that the Philistines had captured from Israel were restored to Israel, and Israel delivered the neighboring territory from the hands of the Philistines. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel continued as Israel's leader all the days of his life. From year to year, he went on a circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, judging Israel in all those places. But he always went back to Ramah, where his home was. And there, he also held court for Israel. And he built an altar there to the Lord. Marvellous. Do take your seats and pick up your Bibles again. And I'm going to pray for us. Heavenly Father, we've just been singing that you would revive us. And that is our prayer. Please, would you do that? Please would you restore us. Please would you give to your church new life. Please would you help us now as we listen to your word to be responsive to it, to be ready to hear it, believe it, and be changed by it. So Holy Spirit, please come and work among us to revive us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. A number of years ago, uh, so I read a story about a, a family from Argentina who went on holiday to Brazil. And on their way home, the, the husband of the family, Walter, doesn't sound like a very uh, Argentinian name, does it? I don't know how you'd say that. But anyway, Walter was his name. He stopped at the services while his wife was asleep in the back. He got out, filled up the car with petrol, went to the loo, got back on the road. What he didn't know was that while he was in the loo, his wife had woken up and gone inside to buy some cookies. She comes back out, and he's gone. 
he hadn't noticed that she wasn't there anymore. Uh, Neither had his 14-year-old son, who was busy playing on his phone. Of course he was. So they'd just driven off without her. And this woman panicked. She's in a foreign country. She's miles from home. No documents, no money, no mobile. She's been completely abandoned. Uh, The employees of the service station helped her out and eventually took her to the police station because she just was so freaked out by it all. 60 miles down the road, Walter looks back and sees an empty seat. And he pieces it together and works out what has happened. What should he do then? Should he say to himself, oh dear, I did enjoy our marriage. We did have a nice holiday, but I do want to beat the traffic. Uh, Come on, let's keep going home, son. Does he say that? No, absolutely not. Walter needed to turn around. He needed to pull over. He needed to get that car back around and drive 60 miles back. Now, we'll hear what happened to Walter a little bit later on. Um, But in 1 Samuel chapter 7, the people of Israel are in a similar predicament. They sort of look back and suddenly realize, as it were, that they've left God behind. That they've gone off without him, doing their own thing, and he is not with them. And so, of course, they need to return to the Lord. And that's the big thing we see from this passage, return to the Lord. Like Walter, they needed to turn around and head back for the one that they had abandoned Now, how had it happened? Where had they left him? Not in a service station in Brazil. Uh, It had gone wrong for Israel a long time before that. We've seen so far, if you've been here for the 1 Samuel series so far, we've seen the people in an absolute mess. Uh, Their spiritual leaders were scoundrels. They'd led the nation into sin. And where sin goes, judgment follows. And so we saw last time their enemies, the Philistines, defeating them in a battle, stealing the Ark of the Covenant. Their leader, Eli, keels over and dies when he hears the news. And everything's gone. Everybody says the glory is gone. This is a nation at rock bottom. Now, as they say, that I suppose when you hit rock bottom, the only way is up. Sometimes it takes a crisis to bring us to our senses. Maybe you've experienced that. And that's what Israel needed Uh, Last time it finished off with the ark being returned. No thanks to them. They did nothing about this. It was all God. The ark got returned with an apology note. You might think, right, that's it. That's going to be the turning point. But no, then nothing happens for ages. So have a look. Chapter 7, verse 2. The first bit of that says, The ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim a long time, 20 years in all. And it's only then that we get to our bit. Then all the people of Israel turn back to the Lord. For some reason, it takes two decades before they actually return to the Lord. There's 20 years of dryness, of hard-heartedness, of carrying on as if there's nothing wrong. Well, the ark's back. Everything must be sorted then. No, the ark has returned, but the people haven't. They are still far from God. And isn't that often the case when all the external stuff might be in place, but our relationship with the Lord needs fixing? And today we're reading about the moment for them when that happened, as people returned to the Lord. And as we read their story, 
of returning, we'll see what it would mean for us to return. So maybe you're here and you've never known God before. You've never had a relationship with Him. This is going to tell us how to come to Him. Maybe you have been in a relationship with Him and yet you've drifted away from Him, whether that's in big ways, obvious ways, or in small ways. Here is how to come back. This is what a fixed relationship with God will look like. The first thing we see that it looks like is that we will serve Him only. Returning to the Lord means serving Him only. So in verse 3, Samuel reappears. He hasn't been in it for a few chapters. If you realized that last week, there was no Samuel. I don't know where he's been, what he's been doing. But he wants to make sure that their return is real. And so he says to them, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. Samuel doesn't assume this is genuine. They might not actually be deeply sorry for their sin. They might just be feeling sorry for themselves, which is not the same thing. Sometimes we can get very emotional and go, oh, I feel bad, I feel awful, I feel guilty. Or you get ourselves worked up somehow and go, right, this time, this time, this time I'm coming back. But it's just words. Saying that we're returning is not the same as returning. And so Samuel pushes them to show it's real. He's saying, if you really are returning, if you really are, then you will return with all your heart. And that's what Jesus said as well, wasn't it? He told us the most important command is to love the Lord our God with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind and all our strength. Not half-hearted, but all in. And that was the deal in Deuteronomy, which Jesus is quoting for when he says that, which is basically saying, love God like that, totally. Keep the covenant unreservedly, and you will enjoy long life and the good things in the land that he's giving you. That's what was happening in the old covenant. And Samuel is calling them back to that. He's saying, look, come back with wholehearted commitment to the Lord. But imagine uh, there is a man, and he's having an affair. And he gets found out. And he feels bad. And he wants to return to his wife. Part of that is going to mean stopping with the other women. Wouldn't it? If it's real, if he's really sorry, if he really wants that relationship back, he won't be carrying on with anybody else. And it's the same with God. God is ferociously, passionately exclusive. Because love is, isn't it? Love is passionately exclusive. What a weird marriage. If you go, well, I don't really care what you do as long as you come home. No. God says to them, no, you, you can't keep those other gods as a little bit on the side. No. He says they need to rid themselves of the foreign gods and commit themselves to the Lord and serve him only. When Israel entered the promised land, God was doing that, yes, to bless them, but part of that as well was to judge the pagans who were already living there, to punish them for their wickedness. And that was people like the Philistines. Israel was meant to go in and get rid of them, but time and time again, they refused to do it. They didn't think it was that bad. They cozied up to their enemies. 
They even adopted their gods and their religion. They were doing the very things that God was supposed to be judging them for. So, of course, it led to disaster. Whenever we try to make peace with sin, it never helps. And so, throughout the period of the judges, which this is happening in, the Philistines were attacking them again and again physically, as well as leading them away spiritually. It's a really weird relationship. It's not like, these guys are our enemies and we don't want anything to do with them. It's, these guys keep hurting us, but I sort of wish I could be more like them, (laughs) which is so often how we are. Israel could not just say, please, Lord, would you get rid of their army, without God also saying, get rid of their gods. Stop worshipping these other gods. Baal was the main Philistine god, Ashtoreth was his wife or his mistress, and they were fertility gods. So, I mean, the idea was you had to keep them happy if you wanted good crops or more children or productive flocks. And the way that you worshipped them was you went to the temple and then you had sex with a temple prostitute. That was their worship. One uh, writer talks about how appealing that was to people of having the chapel and the brothel in one convenient location. And they would have special festivals on top of the normal things, special festivals, which would basically just turn into an orgy. And the more sexual it got, the more Baal and Ashtoreth, it would go better for you. It's really, really wicked. It is exploiting people's worst urges and putting a religious slant on it. And, and that mix of religion and power and sex was very tempting for people. If they did a, a sort of Ashtoreth explored course, they would say, right, guys, it's all about sex and prosperity. Are you in? To which the average person in WEM might say, yeah, <laughs> sign me up. And I wouldn't even need to change my life at all. Because those other gods, Baal, Ashtoreth, they weren't exclusive. They don't care about your whole heart. They just want you to join in with the things they're doing. Whereas the real God, the true God, actually loves us. And so he demands our soul, our life, our all. Because that's what love does, doesn't it? Now it's unlikely that there's anyone here who worships Baal. Correct me if I'm wrong, tell me afterwards. Uh, Or takes part in these actual fertility rituals and things. But we do have our own idols, those things that we turn to when we're afraid, those people we look to to make sure we're okay. So we, we might just like they turn to them and say, well, I want good crops, I want this, I want everything to go well for me, so I must have that and I can't lose that. Our gods are uh, possessions and money and family even and relationships and sex, yes, and, and pleasure and all those things, all those things being good gifts from God twisted in a way that pulls us away from him. Just like back then, playing on all our desires to lead us into temptation instead of away from it. And like Baal, these things, they promise us so much, but they only actually deliver shame, broken lives. This is incredibly modern. We do the same things under a different name. And and just like the Israelites were, we are called to chuck them out, to rid ourselves of these idols and serve the Lord only. That's what it would mean for us to return to the Lord, to give up anything that competes with God 
for our highest affections. Those things that lead us to do stuff that we know is not right. I wonder what that would look like for you. I wonder what that looks like for me. It needs a lot of thought, doesn't it? What is your ashtoreth, as it were, that you need to throw away? Because repentance is not real if it doesn't lead to action. Walter in Brazil, he can't tell his wife, I'm returning to you, unless he actually does a 180. I'm returning to you in my heart. Well, we'll see about that when you return to her in your car. Actually stop going that way. Start going that way. Let's not just feel sorry for ourselves. Let's actually change direction. And that's what they do in this story. It's a fantastic story. So often it's a story of people not doing that. But they do in verse 4. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. Isn't that great? These are people who really are truly coming back to their senses, just as we need to do. Let's return to the Lord and serve him only. Returning to the Lord also is going to mean that we seek him humbly. We seek him humbly. Admitting that they've gone off with all those other gods was a cause for humility. It should make them reflect on themselves and realize, I have done something wrong And so with Samuel's encouragement, they seek God humbly as part of their repentance. Let's read from verse 5. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they'd assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted, and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. There's a deep heartfelt sorrow for what they've done. Back in verse 2, when it says that they turned back to the Lord, that could be translated, they lamented after him. They're they're grieving. They're struck to the core. There's no excuses. There's no bargaining with him. They just are sorry, (laughs) deeply, humbly sorry. And they express that to God, honestly. In the book of Lamentations, appropriately, after Jerusalem was destroyed, the people were told to pour out your heart like water in the presence of the Lord. And I think that's what's happening here in verse 6, is symbolically they fill up jars of water and then tip them out on the ground. Everything we are, we give that to you. All of our hopes, all of our apologies, we pour that out. We are empty now as we approach you. We are completely empty so that you can fill us again. And in a similar way, they fast. They deny themselves food as a sign of grief, as if they've lost their appetite for everything other than God. And they confess. That is, they come clean. They own up. They admit. They say, we have sinned against the Lord. They finally come out and say what they started to worry about 20 years before. So look back up the page to to chapter 6, verse 20, when a bunch of people have just died because they peeked inside the Ark of the Covenant. The people say, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? And then for 20 years they resolved that question by just not standing in his presence. Until now, rather than keeping their distance, they finally come close and they seek God humbly. 
I wonder, if, have we done that? Have, have you come to the end of yourself, empty and admitted before God, I have sinned? I've sinned. No excuses. I've sinned. I'm sorry. Now, it's quite a bleak thing in, in many ways. You see them, they're fasting, they're pouring out things, they're apologizing, they're this, that, and the other. And nowadays, people might go, cheer up. You know, it's not that bad. You're all right, really? But that's not what Samuel says. He isn't, you know, a doctor going, oh, it's only a bruise. Don't worry about it. Don't be a hypochondriac. No, he says, you're right. This is actually really serious. This needs nothing less than the surgeon's scalpel. Admitting the problem, rooting it out. And that is the same with us. That's how people become Christians. That's how we become Christians. Humbly confessing our sin and our need. Saying, Lord, I am a sinner. Please forgive me. And we don't then leave that behind. We do that once and then we're done. It's interesting that the first of Martin Luther's 95 Theses, which sparked the Reformation, goes like this. This is the first thing that sparked it all off. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. Don't often think that's what the Reformation was about. (laughs) But to say, actually, you know, repentance is just a Bible word for turning around. And he's saying that isn't just something that you do one time or some particular task where you do penance, you do the thing and then you're sorted. The entire life of believers should be repentance. We seek God humbly each day, confessing our sin, acknowledging it, turning from it. And the people there were so aware of their sin, so ashamed of their sin. They didn't even feel able to approach God themselves. They asked Samuel to do it for them. And in verse 5, he says, I will intercede with the Lord for you. And that's what we need as well, is that we need somebody to intercede for us, to speak to God on our behalf. I heard of a situation recently, somebody in real trouble, and they just could not sorted out. They were trying everything. They've been passed from pillar to post, no results whatsoever. And then a friend of theirs said, give me five minutes. Give me five minutes. They knew the person to call. They had a good relationship with them. They got in touch with the person at the top and sorted it out. Five minutes later, they ring back and go, it's done. You're fine. And that's intercession, isn't it? That's sort of standing between two people, speaking up on someone's behalf. And Samuel was doing that for them. Later in verse 8, they beg him, do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us. They knew what they needed was a non-stop 24-7 prayer warrior fighting for them or they were doomed. And that is what we need. This is an amazingly powerful picture of what Jesus does for us, isn't it? Like Samuel, he intercedes for us. If you come along this evening, we'll hear a little bit about Jesus as our advocate, which is a similar idea. Going to the Father, pleading our case forever. See, one day Samuel would be gone. You see, the very next chapter, when Samuel grew old, dot, 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 we're coming to the end of Samuel's time. But Hebrews 7 encourages us. Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. 
Part of seeking God humbly is coming to God through Jesus, knowing that far more than Samuel did, he will never stop crying out to God on our behalf. He will save us completely. So we humble ourselves before him. Let's return to the Lord that way. We're admitting our helplessness, aren't we? And when you admit your helplessness, you're asking for help. And that's why real repentance will look like trusting Him fully. Trusting Him fully, not carrying on with any ideas we can sort ourselves out. And that's what they needed to do. Verse 7, it kind of reminds us the problem of their enemies had not gone away. So it says, verse 7, when the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. So I don't know whether they thought, oh, they're all getting, getting ready, they must be about to attack us, let's get them first, or whether they just go, oh, they're all in one place, that's handy, let's go and get them now. But either way, it's deja vu, isn't it? This is chapter 4 all over again. Israel being attacked by the Philistines. Back in chapter 4, Israel reacted by saying, we can do this, we got this, this is fine. And they are soundly beaten. And then they get attacked again. And this time they go, okay, no, let's, let's be superstitious. And so they carry the ark with them like a lucky charm. As one person said it, thinking they could twist God's arm because they were holding his furniture. You know, it's just nonsense. But without actually depending on God himself, they were whooped. Now here we are, all these years later, the Philistines attack again. Will they have learned their lesson? Well, yes, they have. They are now trusting him fully. They're not rushing headlong into the fight with or without a sort of lucky rabbit's foot or whatever. They aren't rushing off home. They're rushing to God in prayer. They are asking Samuel in verse 8 to cry out. And that's not just sort of, would you, when you get a moment, put in a formal request. Crying out is desperate. Begging, do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. These are not people trying to save themselves. They are trusting God to rescue. And I wonder, day to day, do we look more like chapter 4 or chapter 7? Are we relying on ourselves? I can do this, I've got this. Or trusting God fully? The Israelites cried out, to the Lord to rescue them. And so in verse 9, Samuel offers a lamb as a sacrifice. Again, another brilliant picture of Jesus' death for us. This sacrifice that takes away God's wrath, brings us back to him. And when that has happened, verse 9 goes on, he cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. It's wonderful, isn't it, that this return to the Lord is met by God answering them. Verse 10 says that God's rescue comes while Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering because those two things are linked. Rescue comes to us through sacrifice. God's favor, this victory returns to us when we return to him through the death of Jesus. And all that happens here is entirely God. The last time this happened, they lost. This time, the difference is him. It's God. They weren't ready. They remember, imagine if right now I said, right, out you go to battle, guys. You go, I didn't really bring that with me this morning. I thought we were coming here to pray and sing and listen to the Bible. You know, that, they weren't gathering at Mizpah for a fight, were they? They weren't battle ready. The Philistines are ready. 
And yet they weren't at all ready for what God was going to do next. Halfway through verse 10, that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. Out of nowhere comes this storm, this booming and confusion, this supernatural power, and it just freaks them out. They don't know what on earth is going on, so to the point that the Israelites can easily overcome them and chase them away. Who saw that coming? Who saw that coming? Well, actually, Samuel's mum did. Samuel's mum saw exactly this happening uh, when little Sammy was only tiny back in chapter 2, if you remember. She prays this, It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. This is how God works. And there's a warning there, isn't it? There's a warning there for us. We really do need to return to the Lord because those who oppose the Lord, it says, will be broken. There will be judgments. But there's also such encouragement here, isn't there, that we don't win in our own strength. The Lord wins for us. We trust Him fully. Salvation, that is not your job. That is not my job. It is His prerogative to do that. Now, we need to be a bit careful here. We're not promised that every problem is going to be fixed for us like this. That would be nice, wouldn't it? You've got trouble at work, you've got a problem at home, and then suddenly, boom, there's thunder and lightning and it's all sorted out. That is not what we're promised. Back then, in the Old Covenant, the blessings, yes, they were very physical. They were tied to the land, victory over their enemies, that kind of thing. For us in the New Covenant, our battle is not against flesh and blood. The church is not a nation with armies at the gates. We're in a spiritual war, which is actually more serious, facing Satan, sin and death. And it's over those things that Jesus gives us victory. Now, one day... Every other battle will be won as well, and we will have something far better than they had, uh, and they will join, us with, join with us in that new creation. But in the meantime, we can trust him to bring us through. Verse 13, verse 14, they talk about peace. Philistines subdued, invasion stopped, territory restored, enemies kicked out, peace with the Amorites, that's Philistines had been kicked out. The Amorites hadn't yet, but they, were, they weren't attacking anymore. There's peace from the outside, peace on the inside, led by Samuel as their leader. Or more literally, in verse 15, their judge. It's a brilliant picture of peace, a picture of the peace we have to look forward to when Jesus comes as judge and sorts everything out. Now, their situation was only very short-lived. It lasted throughout Samuel's lifetime, which is better than nothing, isn't it? That's good. But Jesus' peace will rule forever. And so we can, we should trust him fully. And then finally, and much, much more briefly, when we see what he's done for us, when we see that, returning to him looks like remembering him gratefully. Remember him gratefully. The, the climax of the story comes in verse 12. The way it's written, it's building to verse 12 as they commemorate what God has done. It says, when, Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. 
all the disaster that happened back in chapter 4, that ended with a dying woman naming her baby Ichabod, which means no glory. And the victory of chapter 7 ends with this other naming. It's this permanent memorial stone called Ebenezer. Now, the complete opposite of Ebenezer Scrooge, because this is about generosity. This is about kindness. This is saying it's stone of help. That's what it means, because it's there to remind them, thus far, the Lord has helped us. Thus far, not just what happened that day. That was a good day. There'd been a lot of bad days. In everything that had happened up until then, good and bad, God has helped us. Can you say that? Can we say that? As the musician Ben Folds did, I know all the wrong turns and stumbles and falls brought me here. And so they set this thing up to remember God gratefully. At the members meeting, John talked about this kind of thing, about markers, to remember God's faithfulness. So whether we literally do set up a big stone in our garden or name our house Ebenezer, which I think Steve didn't even know you've done that, and it's a great thing to do. Whether we actually do that physically or not, it's right to look back and remember. In the words of the great hymn, here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. It's saying I'm acknowledging now what God has done in the past and what I'm trusting he will do in the future. Because when we return to the Lord, that isn't a flash in the pan. It's not just emotion in the moment. It is settled, permanent, refocusing on God, which we do not ever want to forget. So we remember him. Now, our Brazilian friend, Walter, uh, he did return to his wife. He drove the 60 miles back. She wasn't there. He had to go to the police station. But they were reunited. And the police say she ran out and started punching and kicking the car. (laughs) It was not a happy reunion. How good it is that God doesn't respond like that when we return to him. He's gracious. And so if you never have before, turn to God today. If you know you've been drifting from God, return today. If we've been brought maybe to, to remember again our need for him, let's return to the Lord. Turning away from all that other stuff, serving him, seeking him, not being afraid, not being self-reliant, trusting him because he will rescue us. Let's just pause for a moment, maybe just reflect on our need to return, and then I'll pray for us and hand back to Steve. Heavenly Father, we want to return to you. We turn away from every idol, every other thing we put in your place. Help us to serve you only. We're sorry for our sin. We humbly ask you for your grace and cry out for your rescue. We thank you so much for the Lord Jesus who always intercedes for us and saves us completely. We trust in him. We want to remember your faithfulness with gratitude.
that you have helped us thus far. And we pray that that would continue. That whatever it is we might be feeling or thinking now, that might be real, that it might lead to real change in our lives. Because we want to return to you with all of our heart. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.